How did General Sherman capture Atlanta in September of 1864? And what was the impact on the presidential election that November? What happened during Sherman's infamous March to the Sea and his march through the Carolinas? How did these actions affect the outcome of the Civil War? For answers to these questions and more insights, stay tuned. Welcome to the U.S. Army History and Heritage Podcast, the official podcast of the United States Army's Center of Military History. The Center of Military History writes and publishes the Army's official history, manages the U.S. Army Museum Enterprise, and provides historical support throughout the U.S. Army. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. I'm Lee Reynolds, the Strategic Communications Officer for the Center of Military History. In this episode, part six of a seven-part series on the Civil War, I'm speaking with CMH historian Dr. Mark Bradley about General Sherman's campaign in Georgia and the Carolinas from 1864 to 1865. This includes Sherman's capture of Atlanta, the march to the sea, and his movements through South Carolina. Welcome, Mark, and thank you for joining me today. My pleasure, Lee. So Dr. Mark Bradley is a historian at the U.S. Army's Center of Military History with an expertise in the Civil War era. He received his bachelor's degree in history from North Carolina State University and his master's and Ph.D. degrees in history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His publications include Last Stand in the Carolinas, The Battle of Bentonville, this, uh, this Astounding Close, The Road to Bennett Place, and Blue Coats and Tar Heels, Soldiers and Civilians in Reconstruction, North Carolina, and the Army's Official History of Logistical Support in the Vietnam War. That's a, that's a big jump from Civil War to the Vietnam War, yes, but uh, actually it's a, a popular publication here. And you're currently writing the U.S. Army History and Heritage book, and I think that's a rewrite. It's a whole like rewrite of an older publication that we have. Um, so what am I missing, Mark? Anything you want to add? Well, Lee, it just so happens that a book of uh, actually co-authored by myself and a fellow CMH historian John Moss uh, just been published, North Carolina Military History. Oh. And it covers... The military history in the Tar Heel State from earliest exploration up to the present. All right. Well, great. Well, we'll have to look for that uh, as well. So uh, congratulations on that. And thanks for the free plug. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hey, thank you for the time and and being here. So, okay, this is now part six of our seven-part series. So, um, you know, previously we've we've gotten into the, um, I, I think we've gotten through Chattanooga. So now let's pick up the strategic setting here. Um, where are we as Sherman is preparing to, um, to attack Atlanta? So set, set all this up for us. Well, let's look at the command level. First off, in March of 1864, General Ulysses S. Grant uh, is summoned to Washington, D.C. He's been promoted to General-in-Chief of the Union Army. Congress has approved his promotion to Lieutenant General So now he's running the show. And it just so happens that his favorite subordinate, Major General William T. Sherman, is preparing to launch the Atlanta campaign. Atlanta campaign is the 
major uh, operation in the Western Theater in 1864. Now, the Western Theater is a huge swath of territory that runs from the Appalachian Mountains to the east to the Mississippi River to the west. That is uh, Sherman's uh, command area. So he's really breaking out of the Western Theater, would you say, because he's going south and then... Well, in a sense, he is. And in fact, uh, he's going to be getting so east, they'll be coming uh, pretty close to the coast by the end of the war. And the Western Theater gets a whole new definition. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is Sherman is going to be working in tandem with Grant. Grant heads east. He's going to go after General Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. His first objective is to break up that army and finish it off as a fighting force. While Grant is occupied in the Eastern Theater in Virginia, uh, General Sherman will be marching south into Georgia. His objective is to break up the uh, Army of Tennessee, commanded by General Joseph E. Johnston. And he will also be uh, marching toward Atlanta, which is the Deep South's largest manufacturing and transportation hub. But Grant emphasizes his first objective is to render that army uh, inoperable. Mm-hmm. Right. And that makes sense. So um, so then they, they he, Sherman is moving south out of Chattanooga, Battle of Kennesaw Mountain, and now he's preparing to attack Atlanta. So, so describe that. What was his plan for Atlanta? Yeah. Let's talk about tactics. Mm-hmm. Sherman has about 113,000 officers and men. General Johnston has about 75,000 troops. So what Sherman will do, this is his favorite tactic, is to outflank the Confederate Army, to force it to fall back. And incidentally, their supply line is the same uh, supply line. As Johnston falls back toward Atlanta, he'll be using the Western and Atlantic to supply his army, while Sherman, who's advancing from his base at Chattanooga, will also use that railroad to supply himself. And as he gets farther south, his supply line will lengthen. That will make it more vulnerable to cavalry raids. He'll have to use more of his combat arm in order to guard that railroad. So it's going to be advantageous on one level for Johnston to fall back to shorten his supply lines while Sherman's get ever longer. Oh, wow. Um, so what was the plan for Atlanta as, as he's moving well, south from Kennesaw? You had just mentioned Kennesaw Mountain. Mm-hmm. Up to the time that he reaches Kennesaw Mountain, he has succeeded in outflanking Johnston's army at each, each uh, we'll say each line that he's assumed. Mm-hmm. But when he gets to Kennesaw, Johnston ends up with a very strong position, deeply dug in along that mountain. Sherman becomes impatient. He's decided that his army is becoming a little too timid and a little too cautious. He's going to launch frontal assaults, three of them to be exact, against Kennesaw Mountain's line. He thinks that Johnston has stretched his forces out and that he's left them left him uh, vulnerable. Mm-hmm. But Sherman is in for a big surprise. Oh. When he attacks at Kennesaw, he's hurled back. Mm-hmm. He loses 3,000 troops. The Confederates just 1,000. Mm. It doesn't seem like a lot compared to Grant and Lee, who are losing far more troops on the Eastern Front. Mm-hmm. But in the words of one of uh, Sherman's subordinates, General George H. Thomas, one or two more such attacks would use up this army. Oh, wow. 
Wow. So, so what does he do? So at Kennesaw, does he just um, well? Guess move, what? Move around him again. He outflanks them yet again. Mm-hmm. He finally is able to get around Johnston's flank, and he pushes Johnston back to the Chattahoochee River, which is the last natural barrier between the Union Army and Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And at that point, Johnston orders his troops to fall back when he finds out that Sherman has already crossed the Chattahoochee using a pontoon bridge. Mm-hmm. And then the Confederate President Jefferson Davis steps in. He's deeply dissatisfied with Johnston's conduct of the Atlanta campaign so far. He thinks Johnston's been too timid, and he's let Sherman get away with too much, with too little sacrifice. So Davis decides to place one of his subordinates, one of Johnston's subordinates in command, Lieutenant General John Bell Hood. Mm. Hood is regarded as one of the most um, aggressive uh, generals in the Confederate Army. Some would say that he's reckless. Mm. But you know exactly what you're getting with John Bell Hood. He's a fighter. And that's just what he does on the outskirts of Atlanta. On July 20th, north of Atlanta, Battle of Peachtree Creek. On the 22nd, Battle of Atlanta, east of the city. And then finally to the west, the Battle of Ezra Church on July 28th, 1864. In each of these battles, uh, Hood is unable to dislodge the federal forces, to defeat them in battle. Mm -hmm. And he ends up losing almost two soldiers for every one of Sherman's casualties. Oh, wow. So was he more um, on the offensive at those battles instead of defending? Oh, wow. Uh, And what Hood does, though, after he's been repulsed three times— is he's decided he's going to use the same tactics that Johnston used before, mm-hmm. or he'd literally bleed his army to death. Mm-hmm. So he occupies his, his uh, entrenchments and holds out for as long as he possibly can. Now, the uh, tactics that Sherman is using at this point, first off, he knows that by temperament, he's too impatient for a siege, mm-hmm. and he lacks the force to do that. The land is just too large. Mm-hmm. So he decides to cut the Confederate railroads, one by one, until there's just one railroad left to the south of the city, the Macon Railroad. And it's at Jonesboro in early September of 1864 that Sherman strikes, cuts the Macon Railroad, and forces the Confederates to fall back and surrender Atlanta. So on September the 2nd, Sherman sends a telegram to Washington Atlanta is ours and fairly won. Oh, wow. Um, and so what did the uh, the Confederate Army do, Hood, Hood and his army? Were a lot of them captured, or did they withdraw out of the city? They withdrew out of the city, and at that point, Hood decided to head north hmm. to lead uh, Sherman on something of a wild goose chase. Hmm. And Sherman actually obliged for a while. Oh. And then he became uh, kind of bored with the operation, Mm -hmm. and he said that if Hood falls back into Tennessee, I will give him rations. (laughs) So what Sherman does is he then looks south to Atlanta and says, okay, enough of this. We're going to go on the next step of my campaigns in Georgia. He lets a subordinate, General George Thomas, who I just mentioned a few minutes ago, handle Hood in Tennessee while Sherman embarks on the march to the sea, the march from Atlanta 
to Savannah. And he says, I can make this march and make Georgia howl. That's what he says in a letter to Grant. And then before we get to that, the, um, the capture of Atlanta was so critical for many reasons, strategically, operationally. Absolutely. But also politically, that what was the impact of the capture of Atlanta on the upcoming presidential election? I know we're in the middle of a great civil war, but we have a presidential right. election coming up in November. Exactly. And in the summer of 1864, Lincoln is convinced that he's going to lose. So he attempts to defeat the Confederates before his successor is able to uh, enter office mm-hmm. and undo all the progress that they've made. But he is given a, a magnificent uh, gift mm-hmm. um, by Sherman. He cap- Sherman captures the city of Atlanta, and that does more to ensure Lincoln's re-election as president right. than any other event that takes place. And then just a quick note on that. So who got to vote that year? Uh, was it just the northern states, or was it any southern states that participated in the election? Um, pretty much the northern states and a few of the uh, areas in the south okay. that were sufficiently organized that they could vote. And incidentally, soldiers in the field had an opportunity to vote. Mm. Oh, good. Yes. And and we still do that today, which, yes, is, right. which, which is great. Um, and then his uh, opponent. Lincoln's opponent. It, oh, um, it's. I, I think it's worthy to note um, George B. McClellan, right? General McClellan, yeah, Democratic candidate for president. Yes, and who Lincoln had now? Did he fire him previously? He, I know he pulled him out of command. He did. He pulled him out of command in the fall of 1862 because he wouldn't fight. Mm-hmm. Never had that problem with Grant, by the way. No, 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 or Sherman for that matter. Right. But yes, McClellan lost his job in the fall of 1862. All right, so now um, Sherman is in Atlanta. He's preparing to march to the sea. How, uh, what, what's the time frame on that? When does he launch his, his infamous march to the sea? It begins on November 15, 1864, and his objective is going to be Savannah. Mm-hmm. You know, he undertakes this march for two main reasons. The first one is he wants to establish a base near the coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, that gives him more options. Atlanta is pretty much in... A, We'll say a dead zone by that time. So getting to Savannah means that he can move his army by ship if he needs to, or he can march overland through the Carolinas. Mm. And even more important, he's undertaking this march to cancel out Georgia as a supplier of the Confederate Army. Right, because as you mentioned earlier, uh, Sherman said, I'm going to make Georgia howl. That's right. And he did. Yes. And well, let's... Let's talk about how he did it, because it wasn't just one force that moved through Atlanta. Didn't he separate his force? Yes, and it's a smaller force than the uh, one that uh, captured Atlanta. He had about 113,000 troops uh, on most of the Atlanta campaign. For the march to the sea, he'll have two armies. We call him an army group commander today, mm-hmm. uh, numbering thirty, roughly 30,000 apiece, uh, the uh, left wing or Army of Georgia, commanded by General Henry W. Slocum, and the right wing or Army of the Tennessee, commanded by General Oliver O. Howard. And incidentally, you're hearing a lot about the Army of the Tennessee and the Army of Tennessee. Oh, yeah. The Army of the Tennessee is the Northern Army, and it's named after a river. The Army of Tennessee is the Confederate Army. It's named after a state. Oh, wow. 
That's a little a, confusing. That's almost a little bit of who a trivia right there. <laughs> yes, I guess I spoiled it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. Um, but then if Hood moved north, and uh, so what was Sherman's forces facing as far as you know, Confederate Army? In, in, in Georgia at that time, uh, he didn't face very much other than cavalry, mm-hmm. uh, several thousand cavalry under the command of Major General Joseph Wheeler. And at Griswoldville, uh, there was a contingent of state militia troops, mm-hmm. essentially boys and uh, old men. I can say that because I'm an old man myself. <laughs> boys and old men who were ineligible to serve in the frontline units. And they were facing a, uh, a really top-notch brigade mm-hmm. commanded by Walcott, General Charles Walcott. And they got cut to pieces. Because not only were these guys veterans, mm. they were veterans with repeating rifles. Oh, yeah. So they didn't fire just a single round like a rifle musket. Mm-hmm. They would fire seven in the case of, uh, of uh, um, one type of um, repeating rifle, Spencer, mm-hmm. or 16 in the case of a Henry. So that made that made a big difference. Not only did the Union have the numbers of soldiers, but they also had technology, better, better weapons, technology, better weaponry. Right. Yeah, they had the technology. Mm-hmm. And when was that introduced in the war? Those repeating rifles. They started appearing in um, late '63. Oh wow! In fact, as early as '63, uh, Wilder's Lightning Brigade, a mounted infantry unit, uh, was completely armed with. Uh, Spencer rifles, mm-hmm. uh, and incidentally, the soldiers had to pay out of pay for those out of their own pockets. Wow, they were not cheap. Wow, fifty bucks or higher. That's a lot of money back a then. A lot of money in eighteen sixty four. It's like six months' pay right there. For, uh, pretty much, yeah, wow. yes, very close. Oh, wow. All right, so um, how it, as as uh, German, uh, Sherman moves towards the sea? How what are they doing? his soldiers doing to make Georgia howl? Well, Sherman found out from the 1860 census, which he studied, mm-hmm. that he can make this march through Georgia if he mar- if his troops move about 10 to 15 miles a day, mm. that they can keep him alive. He has issued a special field order to forage liberal on the country. Mm. So his units are not uh, being supplied uh, by conventional methods. They're going out and and foraging mm-hmm. for their uh, provisions. Wow. And this is, um, needless to say, these men get away from the main columns mm-hmm. and uh, discipline can get a little dicey. Right. That's how they keep alive. Mm-hmm. And that's also how they break the back of the Georgia civilians. Mm-hmm. Um, you can imagine how they feel about losing all their provisions. Right. So if they can't take it, they're, they were destroying it. Yes. And Sherman estimated that in the course of his march, and keep in mind they're destroying railroads, uh, factories, uh, other facilities, armories, mm-hmm. uh, and along the way, uh, Sherman estimates that they destroy or confiscate over one hundred million dollars in goods. Wow! So that's that's, that's a lot, a of, lot money of money back even then. even yeah. today. It but, is. Yeah. But in 1864, mm-hmm. it's a lot of money. And the purpose again was to break the back of the South. Um, yes, you know their their supply is to render the state of Georgia unable to supply mm-hmm. the Confederate Army, which is where a lot of the supply for the Confederate Army came. Exactly. From. Yeah. All right. So, um, any other significant battles on his march to the sea, or how, you know, let's talk about how that ended up. Well, um, 
there just aren't that many battles that occur on the march to the sea, simply because the, con- the Confederates don't have a large enough force to mount a serious resistance. Right. Now, when Sherman gets to uh, Savannah, he does have to attack Fort McAllister. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fort McAllister's on the coast, and he has to knock that fort out in order for the Union fleet to move into uh, Savannah Harbor. Mm-hmm. So um, at Fort McAllister, uh, let's talk about that battle. If they're guarding the port, where are the guns facing, the cannons? Are they facing outward or inward, or was there a mixture of both? Um, <laughs> that's actually a good question. I'd say probably both. How long did it take them to take down Fort McAllister? Um, well, first off, Sherman was a, uh, Sherman used his former uh, uh, division under the command of William B. Hazen, used those troops to attack the fort. And they were able to storm it and capture it within about an hour. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. It, they didn't really stand a chance. I think mm-hmm. the garrison was around 300 strong. Oh, wow. And they were just simply overwhelmed. So then he takes control of Savannah? He does. He presents the city of Savannah with uh, the guns and, and cotton to President Lincoln uh, as a Christmas gift. <laughs> okay. It's December 21st, 1864, by right. the way, when he captures the city. And how long, uh, so once he's there, now do we have uh, Union shipping coming in? Yeah. Resupply from the sea? That's right. And then what was the plan then? He has Savannah. Um, I I understand that, as you mentioned earlier, that there was a lot of coordination between Grant and Sherman. Yes. So what was their plan um, at this point? First, I just wanted to briefly mention uh, uh, Lieutenant General William J. Hardy. He's the Confederate commander at Savannah. And one of Sherman's objectives in capturing Savannah is to also cut off General Hardy's forces so they can't escape. Oh, okay. So we see a tendency here. Mm -hmm. Um, At the end of the Atlanta campaign, Sherman is unable to capture even a part of Hood's army. Mm. They are able to escape. Although he does accomplish uh, the objective of making it a lot easier for Lincoln to be reelected right, by capturing yeah. uh, Georgia, or uh, I'm sorry, by capturing Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Now, in the case of Savannah, Sherman, again, is unable to capture the army defending that city. Hardy is able to escape across the bay to uh, South Carolina. Will that army come into play uh, as Sherman moves north? Uh, yes. Um, we'll see once we get into the Carolinas campaign. Some of the troops that were defending Savannah will be opposing Sherman in his march through the Carolinas. And then uh, before we get into talking a little bit more about Savannah, uh, with Hood, he, you said he, he escaped up to Tennessee. Was his ultimate goal to reinforce Lee up in uh, Richmond? His, uh, what he wanted to do, Hood was hoping that he could uh, reverse the momentum mm. by winning, um, and it would be something of a miracle, mm. by winning a miraculous victory in Tennessee. Mm. And he hoped to knock at least a part of Sherman's forces in the Western theater out of the war. Unfortunately, what he did at Nashville was he, his army was virtually annihilated. On December 15 and 16, Mm. while Sherman is approaching Savannah, Hood is getting his butt kicked. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the -hmm. simplest way to put it. Mm -hmm. So, and it renders his army uh, virtually uh, ineffective, combat ineffective right. from that point on. Okay. We will see a remnant of it in North Carolina 
in early 1865, mm-hmm. but it's just a shadow of that former army. And then, uh, so, so now Sherman has Savannah, and in coordination with Grant, I think there were a couple different options that they were considering, their, their yes. courses of action. So what were their COAs? Well, initially, Grant wanted Sherman to board his troops onto transports mm. to sail up to Virginia and join the fight on the Virginia front at Richmond and Petersburg. Mm-hmm. But when Grant found out that it would take months, given all the demands on the shipping, Mm -hmm. it would take months to move Sherman's army up into the Virginia theater, he agreed with Sherman's proposal to march overland through the Carolinas. Mm -hmm. So that's what they decided to do. And with uh, marching overland through the Carolinas with the ultimate goal of joining Grant um, exactly you know, around Richmond, Petersburg, Richmond, wherever he was going to be at the time. That's right. So um, when does Sherman start his move towards the Carolinas, and how does he do that? All right, Sherman moves into South Carolina on February 1st, 1865. And the first thing I want to stress is that the march through the, uh, South Carolina is not a pleasant one for the civilians in that area. Right. Sherman's men regard... South Carolina is the cradle of secession. It was the first state to leave the Union, the first to secede. So they decide to pay uh, a little pay, uh, give a little payback to the South Carolinians. And uh, they freely, uh, we'll say they freely borrow and, uh, and yeah. burn along the way. I, I was stationed in South Carolina for several years, and there are signs, I mean, historical markers, um, that reflect the sentiment you're talking about. Yes. And so it's still, um, still to this day, it's, there's, there's a lot of disdain for Sherman. And the Confederate Army is unable to mount much of a resistance to Sherman as he advances through South Carolina. Incidentally, he has uh, roughly the same force that he had when he marched through Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, about 60,000 troops under the command of Slocum and Howard. And is he going again in two wings? Yes. How is he doing? Okay. And... One of the advantages that he gains by doing that, in addition to speeding the march by spreading out the the wings, he also keeps the Confederates guessing as to what his uh, destination is. Mm -hmm. Uh, He can move one wing, faint in one direction, and uh, the Confederates might think, oh, he's heading that way, when in fact he's heading in the opposite direction. And by the time he reaches Columbia, the capital of South Carolina, in February 17, uh, He's pretty much uh, moved through South Carolina mm-hmm. with impunity. The same thing, making them howl just, just oh, as yes. did in Georgia. Much of South Car- uh, much of uh, Columbia is lying in ashes yeah. on the morning of February 18th. That's the day after Sherman's army marches wow. through. Uh, the reason for that, high winds, uh, burning cotton left in the mm. uh, streets by Confederate cavalry, drunken federal soldiers who are given a bit too much whiskey by uh, the uh, populace of uh, Columbia thinking they can, you know, maybe make them a little more uh, oh, really? amenable. Oh, how interesting. Wow. But uh, they, they try to welcome them in or at least seem like they were being welcomed yeah, in. Yeah, offering them a, drunk. a friendly cup. Oh, how funny. And uh, kind of backfires on them. Mm-hmm. And as a result, much of uh, Columbia is lying in ashes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and through all this march, uh, are they meeting the same tepid resistance that they met through Georgia? More no or one less. Really, so there were no significant battles. Um, Not in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. In fact, 
during the March to the Sea and uh, the March through South Carolina, uh, there are occasional actions between, um, we'll say, foraging parties and Confederate cavalry, mm-hmm. but large-scale uh, engagements don't occur until we get into North Carolina. Okay. And does anything else happen in South Carolina? They capture Columbia? I mean, basically burn it? And One crucial uh, command change is made mm-hmm. on February 22nd. Uh, the Confederate General-in-Chief, Robert E. Lee, appoints General Johnston, who's been in virtual retirement since his removal from command in front of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Lee appoints Johnston to command the uh, Confederate troops in the Carolinas, Georgia, and Florida, and he directs them to concentrate all available forces and drive back Sherman. Good luck. (laughs) Yeah, what forces is he actually (laughs) commanding? He has has some uh, uh, scattered forces. Mm -hmm. We talked about Hardy's forces uh, Mm -hmm. that escaped uh, from Savannah, the remnant of the Army of Tennessee Mm -hmm. uh, under Hood, they're moving into the Carolinas about this time. Uh, there's Confederate cavalry, um, which has pretty much been tailing uh, Sherman's forces throughout the two campaigns, mm-hmm. uh, March to the Sea and the March through South Carolina. And then when they get to North Carolina, the Department of North Carolina troops will also join. We're moving out of South Carolina. And into North Carolina. So when does that happen? And talk, is he in two wings again? How, how Still is Still in two wings. Okay. This is early March of 1865. Mm-hmm. Uh, Johnston is frantically trying to collect uh, something of an army. And while he's doing so, he's trying to buy time. For example, on March 10th, 1865, at Monroe's Crossroads on present day, uh, Fort Bragg Military Reservation. Wow. Confederate cavalry surprises a portion of the Union cavalry under Brigadier General Judson Kilpatrick and overrun the camp. Hmm. And they are able to hold the camp briefly before they are hurled back. Okay. Oh, wow. But it's a warning to Sherman and to his subordinates that there's still some fight left in the Confederate Army. And what's notable is that you said March 10th? That's right. 1865. The war is going to be over in a month. We are, yes, we're, we're really weeks away from Lee's surrender to Appomattox. And we shouldn't forget that there's also a um, contingent of troops that will be joining Sherman in North Carolina, Department of North Carolina troops mm. under the command of Major General John M. Schofield, who are coming in from the coast. Mm. And they'll fight a battle at Wise Fork near Kinston, North Carolina, around the 8th to the 10th of March mm-hmm. and continue to move west to link up with Sherman's forces. Okay. So Johnston has to deal with not just Sherman and his 60,000 troops, but Schofield's 30,000 as well. That's a significant size force that uh, he would be facing. And And just to give you an idea of the uh, disparity in numbers, when Johnston gets to Bentonville, which will be the site of the major battle Mm -hmm. in this campaign, he'll have just 20,000 troops. And is he facing both Schofield and Sherman at that point? Fortunately for Johnston, he has some time to actually launch a surprise attack. First off, we uh, have a battle at Aversboro on the road to Bentonville. Uh, it's essentially a delaying action fought by General Hardy's forces from South Carolina and Georgia. Mm-hmm. And they slow up uh, Sherman's advance and buy time for Johnston to launch a surprise attack on Slocum's wing, that's the left wing I was telling you about, Mm -hmm. at Bentonville. And 
lo and behold, Johnston will actually have something approaching even odds for a while, at least, at Bentonville. So, how, so let's describe that then. You know what happened in Bentonville. When, first, at, at, what was the date of that? This is March 19 through 21, 1865. So we're getting real late in the war. Mm-hmm. And this is the last Confederate open field offensive of the war. Oh. And Johnston is actually able to rout a portion of Slocum's forces, mm. uh, a division and elements of two other units. Mm-hmm. Um, and things are looking pretty good for the Confederates. But right. then Slocum begins to bring in his numbers, mm. evens the odds, and he's able to hold on until the other wing under General Howard arrives at Bentonville on the 20th of March. Mm-hmm. And then on the 21st, uh, something of a loose cannon by the name of General Joseph Maurer, uh, he's a 17th Corps division commander, decides to attack the Confederates where they're most vulnerable, near Johnston's headquarters at Bentonville, and nearly cuts off their only route of retreat. Oh, wow. Fortunately, Johnston uh, appoints Hardy to command the counterattacking force, and he's able to hurl back the federal attack. Mm. But eventually, Johnson withdraws. Yes. He sees the writing on the wall. He realizes he's hopelessly outnumbered, mm-hmm. and he falls back to his headquarters at Smithfield. And where is that? That's uh, roughly midway between Raleigh, the state capital to the west, and Goldsboro, uh, a railroad junction to the east. Now, I haven't mentioned Goldsboro yet, mm-hmm. but that is Sherman's destination. Oh. His plan is to rest and resupply at Goldsboro, and then move on to Virginia. And, and so after Bentonville, is that what he does as he moves towards Goldsboro then? Yes. First off, he, he pays a quick visit to Grant's headquarters at City Point, Virginia. Oh. And he meets uh, President Lincoln there. And he gets uh, the sensation from President Lincoln that he wants uh, a conciliatory peace. He wants to bring the Confederates back, you know, the ex-Confederates uh, back right. into mm-hmm. the fold. Yeah. Um, and that he wants to be conciliatory in doing it. Mm-hmm. So Sherman spends a few days at City Point hammering out strategy with Grant, getting positive vibes from President Lincoln. Mm-hmm. He returns to Goldsboro. The plan is to move on Richmond and Petersburg. But then news arrives in April, mid-April of 1865, that Grant has captured Richmond and is driving Lee west for a possible junction with Sherman's forces in North Carolina. Oh, wow. But that never happens. Mm-hmm. Grant blocks Lee's advance and forces him west rather than south. All right. So he, he goes west to Appomattox. And so what's, what is Sherman doing at that point? On April the 10th, while he doesn't know this, but Lee has already surrendered at mm-hmm. Appomattox. But oh, on yeah. April the 10th, the day after Lee's surrender, Sherman begins what proves to be his final campaign. He begins a march to Raleigh. And while he's on that march, news arrives from Virginia of the fate of Lee's army that Lee has surrendered to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. But looking back at this, how much pressure did Sherman put on the Confederate army to force that surrender? Well... We've seen yet again that Sherman has allowed another enemy to escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, Johnston has escaped to fight another day, but there is no battle. Mm. And Johnston realizes that the end is, is at hand. Mm-hmm. With Lee's surrender, there's nothing left to do but surrender. But he wants to get the best possible terms. Oh. So the two generals agree to meet at a point 
roughly midway between their uh, respective front lines mm-hmm. at a place called the James Bennett Farm, uh, about five miles west of current, uh, present-day Durham, North Carolina. Oh. And it's there over three days that they'll hammer out their peace agreement. Oh, so they had a separate peace agreement outside of what was agreed upon at Appomattox. Yes. Lee and Grant. Absolutely. And what were the differences in that agreement? What General Sherman essentially did was he allowed the Confederates, and this is his proposed uh, terms. Mm -hmm. They were never ratified. Mm. But he would allow the Confederates to keep their arms, take them back home to defend themselves. Uh, They could retain their state governments. They could uh, also have their personal, political, and property rights. Oh. Now, that's significant because he does not mention slavery, but he does mention property. Ah. The Confederates think, oh, so he's letting us keep our slaves when he never intended to. Mm -hmm. It was done as a courtesy to General Johnston that Mm -hmm. he would not mention slavery overtly. So there it is. It's lying out on the table. Right. And... You can imagine what the authorities and oh, I also forgot. He also issues amnesty mm-hmm. without distinction. That means that President Davis, his cabinet, mm-hmm. senior leaders in the army are all pardoned. Sherman did that. That's under Sherman's term. Mm-hmm. When those terms reach Washington D.C., you could imagine what it must have been like. It was the the cabinet especially secretary of war stanton <laughs> edwin m stanton wow. were apoplectic yeah oh wow and they sent general grant to raleigh north carolina to take over the negotiations well grant had too much confidence uh and regard for general sherman to step in at that point he simply was there as we'll, we'll say as a benign presence to lend support to sherman mm-hmm. Sherman and Johnston met for a third time, April 26, 1865, and hammered out an agreement uh, with General Schofield's help that essentially uh, is a duplicate of the Appomattox terms okay. with a few additional uh, conciliatory gestures, mm-hmm. uh, giving river and rail transportation to the Confederates, letting one in seven Southerners keep their arms. Mm. Um, and Sherman even gives... Uh, uh, this isn't even in the uh, agreement, but he gives uh, hundreds of thousands of rations to the Confederates. Uh, and Johnston is moved to reply that uh, that gesture re- reconciled him to what he considered the greatest mis- misfortune of his life, that of having to face Sherman in the field. Oh, wow. And it That's actually leads to a, wow. a, a very cordial relationship. They became close friends after really? the war. In that final agreement, was slavery brought up at all? No. They they still did not. No, they're leaving all political decisions to the politicians. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sticking strictly to military uh, terms. All right. And that that would come later, and we'll we'll address more of that in our final episode as we address um, Appomattox a little bit more in detail, and then also uh, Reconstruction, and ultimately ending with Juneteenth. Mark, I know we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, the end of the show. I always like to have some Hua trivia. I think mm-hmm. you brought up a lot already in <laughs> this. Um, but I think one of the things, um, Sherman's hat, I think the, the Hua trivia had mentioned earlier, I think, uh, off the air, uh, was that um, the Center of Military History and our Army Museum Enterprise actually has um, Sherman's hat that he wore through. That's great. So I think that's really cool. And yes, just a plug is. for our Army Museum Enterprise. And if anybody's listening that has an opportunity to visit any of our museums, go 
and visit those museums. They have some amazing artifacts. And uh, hopefully one day uh, people will get to see Sherman's hat as well. But Mark, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Some great insights. I, I appreciate you, uh, you coming out and, and helping us with us today. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. So now if anyone wants to learn more about the Civil War and learn more about Army history in general, I encourage you to explore our website at history. Dot army dot mil. We have a great pamphlet series about the Civil War. And Mark, you wrote, how many books did you write in that series? Um, let's see, I wrote The Civil War Ends, The Army and Reconstruction, and I edited uh, five others. Right. So uh, Mark had a, a lot to do with our Civil War pamphlet series. It's a great series, a, a really good reads. They're, um, they're, they're short pamphlets, so they're, they're quick reads, and you can access them from our website, again, at history.army.mil. And you can get them as free PDF downloads, or you can order them uh, for free if you're part of the Department of Defense or purchase it from the Government Publishing Office. And if you want to experience Army history every day, then please visit our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We do This Day in Army History and do soldier unit profiles. There's a lot of great information that we put out every day on social media. And please join us every week on this podcast for more in-depth discussions as we cover topics from all eras of U.S. Army history, examining battles, soldier experiences, equipment, weapons, and tactics. Thanks for joining us today on the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. For the Center of Military History, I'm Lee Reynolds, and until next time, we're history. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or opinions of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. For more information about the Army's proud history and heritage, go to history.army.mil.